Welcome to Syracuse University Talks Business, a collaborative podcast about the innovations, challenges, and opportunities in the modern business world and their impact on other industries. This podcast is produced by the Whitman School of Management at Syracuse University. I'm Olivia Conti, and today we catch up with Whitman Professor of Supply Chain Management, Patrick Penfield. You'll hear how the supply chain reacted in the beginning of the pandemic and how it's changed in the past six months. In order to get this before and after perspective, parts of the audio for this episode are from the COVID-19 and the supply chain webinar held on May 6th. So think back to May, when the words lockdown and quarantine became part of our regular vocabulary. It was also when business as usual became anything but usual. The dilemma we have with the coronavirus is just not one interruption, it's many interruptions. And so this is what we're seeing within the supply chain. It's interrupting our materials, it's interrupting shipping, it's interrupting labor, it's interrupting our our ability to to conduct business via government regulations. So we've never seen this type of situation before. So it's, it's really very frustrating if you're in business these days to try to compensate for this particular situation. So has the supply chain bounced back since May? According to Professor Penfield, the answer is yes. I think for the most part, the supply chain's recovered. So it's about pivoting, right? And so the supply chain, I think, is pivoted in the right direction uh, based on what's happening. It's happened. Um, so the big issue has been um, well, sales. And so those things have kind of gone away uh, because of restaurants and, and universities and stuff, right? So they, they've come back online, um, but the people that supply them, supply those, the uh, the companies that supply them, the suppliers, have kind of, you know, transformed their supply chains to focus on individual sales, you know, sales um, to people, sales that goes, you know, specific to like supermarkets, things of that nature. So that change has happened. Everybody's kind of pivoted in the, in the right direction. The ones that haven't pivoted, unfortunately, are probably not going to be in business. So that's the other dilemma we have is we've got a lot of bankruptcies on the horizon. So things um, could cause some other issues within the supply chain, maybe in the next couple months. Before we take a look at what those future issues might be, let's recall some of the earlier hurdles of the pandemic. The most significant one being rather obvious. So this term called panic buying, which I had never heard of before this incident happened. Right? So I, I honestly, I fell into this particular situation too. So this gentleman right here with all the toilet paper, I actually saw that happen and it kind of alarmed me. And so what did I do? Uh, I think it's just human instinct. I went and bought two packs because I was like, well, that guy's buying a whole cartload of toilet paper. I better protect my, my family. And, and it was very strange, right? So you wouldn't expect that to be the one product that everybody – decides to buy but if I, I did a little research because i was i was really intrigued by this and i was wondering why this product and i found in other situations this seems to be the product that goes first in, in these types of uh, situations pandemics weather events things of that nature along with toilet paper cleaning supplies were extremely difficult to come by especially clorox wipes so they're making 20 million canisters a month so if you think about that that's a huge leap from what they were doing for. And so he was telling me, Pat, the issue is our capacity. And it wasn't really about ingredients. It was about, we can't make the stuff fast enough. In fact, he said, Pat, we talked to one big box retailer. They told us they brought a pallet onto the floor. In 35 seconds, that pallet was gone. Flash forward six months, and you won't see too many people hoarding toilet paper and wipes. But you're still going to have trouble finding them. 
there have been some products that um, have been uh, out of stock, and it's not because it's a lag of it's, it's a, a lag within the supply chain. It's the demand. The demand's unprecedented, right? So the problem is, is that because of this virus that can live for like nine hours, everybody's trying to disinfect, you know, these these viruses as quickly as possible. So the you know that that has caused that issue where the demand is is again something they can't handle. Clorox, they just can't produce enough without um, buying more equipment. And so they may be less apt to do that just because once they buy that equipment and the, the pandemic's over, then you have all this capacity um, that, you know, is going to be sitting idle. And uh, I don't know. See, the, the other thing I think that, uh, that hurt Crocs is I think they thought that this was going to end, <laughs> that this was going to be done like in the summertime, or at least they'd get some type of um, uh, opportunity to, to you know, be able to stock. And they haven't just because the virus is, is really continued and it's still prevalent. And it's, it, it's like I said, it's just moved around the United States. It's just ping-ponging in, in different areas. So Clorox doesn't have a chance to, to be able to, you know, to recover uh, as, as far as you know, building inventory. And, and they won't be able to. They're just, they're, there's just no way just because, again, the demand is, is just too much. Speaking of building inventory, there's one particular group of people who already have a significant amount of inventory built, but they're going to have a hard time selling it. So in the past, you know, uh, if you were a farmer, you grew big turkeys, right? Because people would buy a big turkey for, you know, 20, 15, 20 people, right? To, to come over to their homes. But now because of COVID, we think um, there'll be less of a demand for the big birds, but for the smaller birds. So because people will be less people at people's homes, we think. And, and actually it looks like that, right? Just based on how COVID's been ping-ponging across the United States. So it looks like you know, rates are really starting to rise up in the Northeast again. So back to that. So if you're a turkey farmer, you're kind of you're kind of in a little bit of a predicament, right? Because you know, it takes a while to grow the turkeys. You're accustomed to growing big family-sized turkeys. And now probably what the demand will be um, for smaller birds, you know, because people just aren't going to have that many people over. I would assume that might help, you know, that might, might impact some of the other um, food products, not probably to the extent of, of the, um, the turkeys. But the dilemma the turkey farmer has is, hey, you know, he needed to change how he grew turkeys <laughs> like uh, three or four months ago, right, versus growing these big monster birds. Thanksgiving turkeys aside, the more pressing thing on people's minds right now is getting a vaccine. Professor Penfield says the current rate of vaccine production could cause some major issues in the supply chain. This vaccine production is kind of a little bizarre too, right? So this is kind of the, the dilemma. So, you know, you've got these vaccines that are being produced by, uh, um, I think, five or six pharmaceutical companies. So normally what happens is they go through trials, they get tested, and then they get approved uh, to go ahead and make the vaccines. So this isn't what's happening. So a lot of, uh, of these vaccine manufacturers, um, they're in trials, but they're already making this stuff, right? So there's, there's a situation where, well, if they don't get approved, then they've made all this stuff that is no good, right? So that, that's something that they're, um, that's, that's a gamble that they've made on, uh, on some of these vaccines. Here's the other thing about vaccines. They're very needy like negative 94 degrees needy. Yes, that's how cold it has to be to be able to transport Pfizer's COVID-19 vaccine that the company recently announced to be 90% effective. Just for reference, the FDA recommends your kitchen freezer to be at zero degrees Fahrenheit. 
negative 94 degrees Fahrenheit is unimaginably cold, and being able to transport a vaccine in that temperature is extremely difficult. So that, that's what we call the cold chain. So not everybody's set up to do the cold chain, and, and you're absolutely correct. You know, um, the amount of vaccines that are going to be required to, for, for COVID could cause some delays in regards to how people get those vaccines. So it's not going to happen like this, and you're absolutely correct. Those vaccines have to be protected throughout. So as soon as they're manufactured, they've got to go into this cold chain. And so the cold chain happens in storage, and then from storage to, um, you know, gets shipped to a warehouse. Um, and again, this all has to be at, at, at a certain temperature. And then from the, uh, from the warehouse uh, to another place, where maybe, maybe it's a drugstore that's going to be doing the vac vaccination or you know, a, a hospital. And then from there, it's, again, it's got to be in that same temperature. So yeah, it's not going to be easy because a lot of processes, a lot of um, companies aren't set up for these cold chains. But there are some that are out there. I think the dilemma is just the amount, right? So we've never done anything uh, uh, you know, this many vaccines, and that, that is going to cause some stress definitely for the uh, supply chain. So what will happen probably, it won't get to places as fast as we think it's going to get. While the difficulty of vaccine distribution looms in the hopefully near future, the issues with the distribution of PPE are immediate. It's been difficult to make sure that states have the personal protective equipment necessary when spikes inevitably occur. Professor Penfield believes that having a state stockpile sharing system would be the most effective solution. So we would need a system, right, to be able to kind of look and see who has what. And then everybody would have to be willing to, you know, give up their stockpiles for, you know, certain situations when, when things are getting bad. So if we had a system and everybody's willing to participate and help each other, then I think it would be a lot easier to, uh, to be able to handle these surges that occur. But when you don't, when and again, you'll see certain par parts of, of the United States where they have stockpiles of stuff and they're not disclosing it to anybody. And so unfortunately, this is the sad part about it. They don't disclose it, um, you know, maybe they don't need it. And then eventually what will happen is it expires, right? Because it doesn't have an infinite shelf life either. Either So that's the other dilemma is then, then you're, you're just throwing out the stuff that somebody could have potentially needed in, in another state. I do think, who could drive that would be the federal government. You know, that would be kind of who would have to be responsible for, for making that happen. But right now, it's a decentralized approach that the, the government has. The federal government has a decentralized approach allowing the states to do that. What I would recommend is having a centralized approach and letting the federal government kind of manage that based on you know, the outbreaks that are happening per state. We don't know when this pandemic will end, and implementing this type of sharing system could be valuable in the future should a similar situation occur. So, we've seen where the supply chain started and where it's at now. While there have been some major improvements, there are still adjustments to be made. Thank you to Professor Penfield for his time and expertise. This has been Syracuse University Talks Business. I'm Olivia Conti, and I'll talk to you soon.